0: If you don't subscribe to our Women's Performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hi, Feisties. I hope everyone's having a great day. I have an amazing interview lined up today. But first, I just want to tell you, okay, full... I don't know if it's disclosure. Full f- insight to Feisty Land over here. Um, I moved into a new office. We downsized our office because we used to have a full-time staff of four. and now we're down to just me here in Victoria. Everyone else moved away. And so I moved into a smaller office. and it's quieter back here. Uh, for those who are regular listeners, I don't think we're gonna hear any more seagulls, which I will miss a little bit on the podcast. But I've been here a couple of days and I do have a rather loud neighbor who is talking loudly on a call right now (laughs) so just saying it hit there are thin walls and so if you hear someone else talking in the background that is what is happening um anyway as i said i just hung up from today's interview and wow what a great conversation i talked to Michaela McKenzie who is a journalist and former senior editor at Glamour magazine Michaela covers women's equality through the lens of sports and wellness and also the gender gap across industries. Let me tell you, Michaela is my people. Her and I caught up because her newest book, Money, Power, Respect. How Women's Sports Are Shaping the Future of Feminism, is coming out on June 27th. So, I spent most of the day yesterday reading it, and oh man, it was so awesome. Michaela's writing is well-researched and highly academic, but also as readable as writing can be, with stories woven in about the biggest changemakers in women's sports, all of whom she's interviewed, from Billie Jean King to Megan Rapinoe, Women's stories of athleticism and advocacy are woven into every chapter. Michaela and I talked about whether sports are really the, quote unquote, last bastion of the patriarchy, how to respond to people who tell tell us that women's sports are boring, will never get viewer numbers, or that women are physically somehow less capable than men. We also talk about the business of sports and why women's sports are the best investment right now before we get started i also want to mention that inside tracker added hormone markers to their testing so for the science geeks those tests are estradiol progesterone and tsh levels that are that are all now tested as part of their program and these are all biomarkers that are meaningful when it comes to women's health We used to have to wait for months and jump basically jump through hoops of fire to get our doctors to prescribe these kinds of tests. And now we can simply order them at InsideTracker.com forward slash go to tracker.com forward slash feisty and you get 20% off. So this is a great episode, but also make sure you get your hands on Michaela's book. Hi, Michaela. So excited to talk to you today. Hi, thanks for
1: having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So I got your book and I was reading your bio and it says that you're a journalist that writes about women and power, uh, which is very intriguing to me. I love this. Like, (laughs) is there as how long, sorry, how long has that have you had that as your kind of like your own personal byline? Mm, yes, very good question. Um, I So that kind of just developed
1: with this book. So I've been writing about women's equality in various forms for years. Um, and it was kind of throughout the reporting of this book over the last couple of years that I really came to understand and appreciate that power is always kind of at the center of these conversations, you know, whether you're talking about um, equal pay or access to healthcare, like it always comes down to this conversation about power, Um, you know, who controls it, who has it, who's trying to keep the status quo in place to keep it. Um, And so, yeah, that just sort of became evident to me that that's the thing that I'm interested in is looking at women's relationship to power and how
0: we can change that and how it's evolving. Yeah, I um my my PhD was actually in women's history. So I kind of took like the same lens on ancient history because you're talking when you're coming from a feminist lens, is there's, there's always that power dynamic and analyzing and deconstructing it. Um did you have a moment like as a child when you realized as a child or a young person where you were like, wait a second, there's a ton of gender inequity in our world?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think, you know, looking back on it. I don't think there was so much like one moment or a specific instance where I was like, hang on, this isn't right. Um, and more so just like the cumulative experience of being a woman. Like mm. I think bias and misogyny is so in the water that the older you get, the more water you swim in and the more obvious it becomes to you. Um, so I think I was pretty lucky to have parents who, you know, were always great about being like, girls can do anything. You can do anything you put your mind to. Um, which is awesome, but I think, you know, that doesn't always acknowledge the fact that the systems that we live in are not structured equally and fairly, Um, and that can be really insidious, right, like it's all these suggestions of like, oh, maybe you should take an English class instead of a math class because girls are better at English, and maybe you should sign up for the dance class instead of the soccer team because girls are better at that, Um, And then certainly, you know, becoming a young professional in the working world and maybe not being taken as seriously and starting to understand firsthand what the pay gap looks like. Um, Yeah, I think it just sort of crystallized for me over time uh, that this is something that impacts
0: every facet of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think for me, I was always told as a child, like you can do anything. Yeah. You know, and then I would look around and be like, yeah, but my chances of becoming prime minister of <laughs> Canadian chance of becoming prime minister, pretty low, <laughs> you know, yeah. chances yeah. of becoming a pro athlete, mm, pretty low, <laughs> pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> like, like this is real observation of the world, right?
1: <laughs> I know it's like, it comes from a good place. Like it sounds awesome in theory, but it's like, you know, we also have to have those conversations about what the reality looks like and, you know, how we can fight that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love how you approach it in the book, like doing all the interviews with, you know, women who have been sort of fighting for equality. Are you an athlete yourself? Um, You know, it's funny (laughs) when you do
1: what I do and have the privilege of getting to speak to people like Simone Biles and Alex Morgan. I'm like, I can't call myself an athlete. Like I'm not at all in the same world that they are. Um, but no, I grew up as a competitive dancer and then, um, Mm. in college I took up running. And I think that's when I first really started to identify as an athlete and and kind of experience firsthand the power of sports. Um, Mm -hmm you know, being a runner, it was something I like never thought I could do. I thought I would be bad at it. I thought I would hate it. Um, and it really ended up becoming this space where it was, you know, where I was able to challenge assumptions that I had about myself. Um, and I love it, you know, I'm so happy to be able to do it. Um, I started volunteering when I was, um, a young graduate with girls on the run, which is this amazing nonprofit organization that teaches girls in elementary and middle school uh, empowerment and confidence through literally training for a 5k. Mm. And I think that was like, yep, this is the thing. Like it really, it really can teach you about what you're capable of. And I think that's so important.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's, you know, when I started reading, when I first started reading your book yesterday, <laughs> yesterday, I was like, I, I kept writing down quotes and mm-hmm. I got to like page nine and I was like, I am never going to get through this if I, <laughs> if I don't just like stop and start just reading a little <laughs> bit faster, you know? Yeah. Um, and some of the quotes were yours, you know? And, so, and then there was this one from Mary Jo Kane, um, who uh, we've talked to through Feisty, I think, or maybe it was her um, colleague, Nicole Lavoie, Um, Yeah. Yeah. We like like I love what's the research center called again that they Uh, the Tucker Center for
1: girls and girls and women in sport. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, And Mary Jo Cain said sports provide an arena that can completely destabilize our notions of women's physical, mental and emotional competence. Um, And so I actually it was the it was the head of a women's studies department who one time said to me that like sports are like the last bastion of the patriarchy, which I kind of kept with me because I was like, is it, is it not? Like, do you think that that's true? Um, And do you think that like to Mary Jane, Joe Kane's point, like that, that the change making through sport can be bigger than in other areas. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. Mary Joe is so fantastic. I mean, her work is so foundational in this space and she's done so much, Um, specifically on like perceptions of women in sport. And so, yeah, I mean, she added so much insight to the book and this is such a gem. Um, But yeah, I do agree. I do think that sports really are kind of the last bastion of the patriarchy, if not the last bastion, then I think there's certainly a stronghold Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, when I started covering women's sports, when I was a senior editor at Glamour, you know, what really kind of turned me on to this idea that eventually became the book was that sports, you know, they don't just reflect our cultural attitudes, but I think they really help shape them. You know, it's this literal arena where we get to see women accomplish things. And we also get a lot of really overt messages about the way that we value women, um, mm-hmm. or more accurately don't value women. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, you know, this is such an interesting sort of fertile ground to explore how we can change those stereotypes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's really the core thesis of the book is that sports kind of has this outsized influence in shaping our perceptions of women and women's value, um, in a way that, you know, we just don't see in other industries. Like most industries don't have a reach like Serena Williams or Simone Biles, um, So I think this is a really, really important space to be paying attention to um, for anybody who, you know, wants to promote and encourage women's quality.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it has this layered effect. Right. And you mentioned it in the book. So this this isn't an original Sarah thought, but like that it's (laughs) like when we're talking about change making or often when we talk about like um, feminism we're talking sometimes about like how the world needs to change how we need to change policies institutions etc or how we empower ourselves as women you know and it feels like sport kind of has both of those things right so, like so it can change the perception of how of what women are capable of and also like internally change our perception of what we're capable of um, do, do you see that in some of the women that you talk to yeah. I mean, I think that
1: was evident in pretty much every conversation I had for the book, mm. the personal power of sports, I think really can't be overstated. Like it is this training ground. I mean, there's a reason why we see such a high correlation between, you know, C-suite women and women who played sports. It's like 94% of all women in the C-suite in the U.S. Mm-hmm. played sports in high school that's and it's college. Huge. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. that's no coincidence, right? Like Sports is just this, you know, incredible space where you get to learn grit and resilience um, and having that space be not only available to women, but a space where women are encouraged to be and celebrated uh, is so important for being able to close these gender gaps, you know, later in life and in every industry. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that personal power is huge.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of all the women you talk to, you've talked to so many like pro athletes and change makers in this space, like who influenced your thinking the most?
1: Oh man, that's a big question.
0: <laughs> Sorry. That wasn't <laughs> on the question. The questions <laughs> I said to edit, I just threw that one like <laughs> picking a favorite child.
1: Um, I mean, I have to say Billie Jean King, like she obviously just the absolute godmother of the movement, what she has done for women's equality, you know, beyond sports, I think is just, yeah, I feel so lucky to be able to have talked to her and learn from her. Um, But the thing that really struck me the most about her thinking and her conversations and everything that she has done in her, you know, 50 plus years of activism uh, is that she really understands that this is about culture change It's not just about changing a law or, you know, changing the pay of one tournament or one sport or one company. You know, if you don't have, real deep culture change about you know the worth of one gender versus another, then you're never going to see lasting progress. Um, for example, like equal pay or pay discrimination is illegal in most of the world. Like it's been illegal in the United States since 1963, and yet it still happens every day. So It's not enough to pass a law. It's not enough just to, you know, give a soccer team equal pay. Like we have to have real deep cultural change
0: hmm yeah it's it an, and that sort of plays out in sports too with title IX, right like we have title IX; it it's been in place since 1972 but do we have a single college or university that's in compliance i'm not sure <laughs> right yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah exactly so yeah i think and that's another place that i think sports can be so powerful um because i think they are really effective at driving that culture change i mean you can't look at, you know, the women of the U S women's national soccer team, for example, you can't look at them and see everything that they've done and they've accomplished and think like women aren't capable, you know? Right. Um, so I think it's just, we get all of these amazing case studies in sports that are kind of hard to deny. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. your book is full of case studies, you know, like I love how you weave together what's clearly like deeply academic work with, just stories of the athletes and the change makers too. Um, as you were doing, as you were writing the book, did you find that there are some sports that are more gender equal than others?
1: Um, hmm, Good question. Mm -hmm. I think that I don't think there's any sport where we can say like, you know, great job. Our work here is done. We can move on. Like, I think <laughs> it still has um, a lot of progress that needs to be made. You know, you think I think about the fight for equal pay in soccer, for example, um, because that has gotten so much media coverage. And first of all, it's like, yes, the women's team in the U.S. got equal pay, but the women's team in Canada isn't there yet. Like but. You can look at it, you know, sort of by region. But even, you know, when we did get this huge historic contract in the U.S., us, the players will tell you like the work is just beginning, like just because they have a contract that guarantees them equal pay. Now, that does not mean that the sport is equal Mm -hmm. um, in terms of that deeper cultural change. But um, I do think that there are certain sports that are certainly better than others in terms of gender equality, like you know, you look at tennis, it's no coincidence that the highest paid women athletes are overwhelmingly tennis players. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is because that work has been happening for over 50 years, you know, thanks to Billie Jean King and the original nine, um, in founding what became the women's tennis association and making sure, you know, that they were fighting for equal pay 50 years ago. Um, so I think that, Some sports are better than others. I think there's some really exciting things happening in women's basketball right now in terms of investments being made um, and sort of like excitement and buy-in from the stakeholders in the league um, Mm -hmm. to make more investments in the game, to bring women's basketball to parity with men's basketball, but there's still a massive pay gap there. Um, So it kind of depends on what metric you're looking at.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your point, like the culture change has to happen simultaneously in order for people to watch women's basketball, for example, or value that enough to buy the ticket and go, which people are increasingly, thankfully, (laughs) because it's amazing sport. Um, But yeah, we, you know, I came from triathlon um, and sometimes some of these newer sports like triathlon or CrossFit, like they've avoided a little bit of like the hanging on of the old way of doing sports that comes with like a tennis or a soccer or yeah. some of the more golf, right? Yeah. But still, like you can't separate it from the culture. Like someone once tried to tell me that equestrian, because the men compete against the women, was like completely gender equal, you know, because everyone's competing And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> except that do you live like in a bubble? <laughs> somewhere yeah. else in a different culture where, you know, like there, yeah. still have, there still has to be all of those baked in social biases, right? Right. Somewhere.
1: Yeah. I think like mixed gender competition, to your point, like that is a really interesting arena. I think, you know, we're starting to see that more in these individual sports, even like a lot of Olympic sports, like, you know, ski teams training together, men and women. Um, I think that is going to have huge ripple effects for gender equality and sport more broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's still, you know, it's sort of like, are you asking a big enough question? Like you can look at one competition and say, oh, look, they train together. So therefore it must be equal, but it's like, you know, what's the broader system of support
0: or lack of support behind these athletes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive, and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy, the more you sweat. So they are secure and don't slide down your face. Even when you're running in hot conditions, no matter what sport you do Tefosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach, they are super reasonably priced, which I love so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to TafosiOptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at TafosiOptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. For decades, running shoes have been researched, I've personally been running in the Alma Cruz, and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of headers at hedas.com and use the code Feisty20 for 20 percent off. That's feisty20 at hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Um, okay, so this is, this is something people ask us a lot. Um and so I want to ask you. I want to, I want to pass on this to you. <laughs> um, but you know, we get trolls on our Instagram, right? Or people have like, you know, their cousins and friends and husbands like making comments or in the pub and like the two main arguments sort of against quote unquote women's sports getting having equal pay um or equal airtime is that like it's supposed that women are supposedly biological, biologically inferior right? And that like, no one will watch them because it's boring and like the viewership numbers aren't there. And so they, we shouldn't get paid. Right. So how do you, what are the arguments that you would make against those, those (laughs) terrible arguments in my opinion, but (laughs) what would you say to those people at the pub? (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah. No, that's such a good question because I get the same question all the time too. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll talk about viewership first, because I think this is sort of the most palatable of the arguments against equal pay you know even people who would identify as feminists might be like well hang on wait yeah the women's team doesn't generate as much money and they don't have as many viewers so they shouldn't or couldn't be paid equally Mm -hmm. Um, you know i get how that line of thinking exists it's a valid question to ask Um, but it's again it's it's not asking a big enough question Um, you know take basketball in the united states for example Uh, The NBA was founded over 75 years ago. So they've had nearly a century's worth of investment in that as an entertainment product, not just a sport. Um, that they're now benefiting from, whereas the WNBA was founded just over 25 years ago. So, you know, the men's sport gets a 50-year head start um, with all of the investments, with all of the, you know, uh, cultural significance that that carries. And then, you know, women, the women's game is expected to live up to the same viewership standard. Um, So that's just, it's an apples to oranges comparison. I think when we do see the product treated more equally, like for example, in tennis, like you can look at the U S open and the, you know, the women's final and the men's final receives pretty similar hype, pretty similar media coverage, not exact parody, but it's pretty good. Um, and we do see the women's final actually pull in more viewers than the men's mm. final in 2021, you know, uh, the final was, uh, between Layla Fernandez and, um, Amaretta Kanu, and they actually had a higher viewership uh, then the men's vinyl, which was Djokovic going for his like 21st grand slam historic record breaking title. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you actually treat each property similarly from an entertainment perspective, you do see those viewership numbers. Um, when it comes to the biological inf- inferiority argument, that's, you know, that's a tough one not to get just infuriated by it. Because- <laughs> <laughs> um, But, you know, I think two things are really important to understand there. First of all, it's not appropriate to say that all men are stronger and faster than all women because, Mm -hmm. you know, Justin Bieber is never going to beat Alison Felix in a race. That's just not going to (laughs) happen. It's great
0: examples.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like, obviously, you know, that's, that's not going to be his strength and skill set. Um, so I I think it's just sort of dangerous and lazy to make the argument that all men are going to be bigger and faster than all women. But I think the more important thing to understand and the more interesting conversation to have, and this is something that Mary Jo Kane talks, you know, really eloquently about, um, is how do we define athletic superiority? Do we define Mm -hmm. superiority as, you know, who can, lift the most weight? Or do we define athletic superiority as who can do a backflip on a balance beam? Um, Both of those things obviously require a lot of athletic skill. Certain types of physiques are going to be better tailored to one versus the other. Um, One is not better than the other. One does not make you a better athlete than the other. So I think, um, you know, the way that we frame, you know, biological superiority is just, you know, very gendered. And even you know when you look at sort of a, a head-to-head comparison, like there's this great example in the book um, that I, the story that I really loved while I was reporting of you know Usain Bolt saying that he can't run. I think it was the 200 meters. He like can't run it. He's really slow. And in fact, when you look at like the you know women's championship, he would come in like. 1000th place um, <laughs> his best time in that race. You know, there's like a thousand women who were faster than him. Whoa. Um, and so that's even like, he's a runner, they're runners. It's just, that's not his race. Right. Right. So I think there's just so much room for interpretation in the way that we define athletic skill and it's just, yeah, it's really sort of lazy and dangerous to say like, Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to define athletic skill only in the ways that like suit a very specific type of man under a very specific set of circumstances.
0: Mm -hmm. For sure. And it's like, it's interesting. You talked about tennis earlier, right? Like tennis, not only has it had time and investment to build so that the women's game is valued equally by media and sponsorship and stuff like that, but also it's had time to develop its own game. Yeah, right. That looks like different than the men's game. And I was thinking I was actually talking to someone about this yesterday in basketball, because, we, you know, we have the WNBA, like kind of, I don't know how many years behind tennis. quick math, but like, you know, (laughs) now we see the women's game starting that evolution, right. And I think that like, we need to allow for that too, because they can develop into their own thing in and of themselves, like the two games don't have to be and they can both be like, sometimes to some people the women's game is more interesting right or better to watch right depending on like sport to sport person to person so yeah exactly and I think you know there's sports are so
1: interesting because they are you know there's a like the pure athletic competition piece of it and then there's also the sort of entertainment enterprise piece of it right Mm -hmm. and like when you think about sports as entertainment products that aren't necessarily tied to, you know, who's demonstrating the biggest dunk or whatever it is, um, then I think the conversation gets a lot more interesting because there's all of this data that supports the idea that uh, women athletes have built more engaged fan bases. You know, it's like it, it all depends on kind of like how are you
0: measuring success here. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. We were, um, I I said before the show that we covered a feisty, covered a basketball game for the first time, you know, last weekend. And so we had, like, I had a, I have a sports reporter, so she knows about basketball, but for us, it was the rest of us, it was all new, (laughs) you know? Um, (laughs) But it was interesting because we had the woman who's like the first Canadian that ever dunked apparently, you know, she was, but she was a kind of resistant to the question about it like it was very interesting to us like oh right so first of all she was resistant because she's like well I don't know if I'm the first I'm just like the first person that we know that and then secondly she was like the women's game is just different Mm -hmm. like it's not dependent on dunking
1: (laughs) right and I think that's sort of the really interesting that's happened interesting thing that's happening in women's sports is like this isn't just about succeeding under these terms that have been defined by men's sports. It's about mm-hmm. building an entirely new system. Mm-hmm. I love that.
0: That's so good. And I think, you know, to the back to the viewership numbers too, like I was thinking about, and I I want to understand this more and I want my audience to understand this more too, that like there's a difference between in business between profit and investment, right? And that a lot of people, I've found this as as I've been building a business, a lot of people just don't understand business at all. They just hear a really big number, like that's a billion dollar industry or whatever. And then it's like, oh, they think there's like a billion dollars sitting somewhere in a bank, like (laughs) related to that thing. You know, that's just not how it works, right? And like, I think, and you made this point earlier when we were talking about viewership numbers, that like the we really need to be looking at like the investment piece, like until there's been, an, there's been more investment in women's game, right? Like how much do you, do you know the, these types of numbers? Like how much more investment has there been, for example, like in men's basketball than, than women's basketball?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but yeah, it's, it's billions for sure. I mean, you can look at, you know, even what's happening in the NCAA with basketball and it's like, you can actually put a number on what, you know, the potential profits that an organization is missing out on by not investing. Mm.
0: Um,
1: And, you know, we saw this with March Madness in 2020, you know, this huge debacle for those who aren't familiar Um, where photos of the weight room in the women's tournament bubble were shared, you know, compared to the weight room in the men's tournament bubble, which is like this state of the art gym that has every single piece of equipment you could ever dream of and this hotel ballroom, like sprawling and expansive. And then the women's, you know, quote, workout facility is literally one rack of dumbbells that you could have bought on Amazon for like 400 bucks and a pile of yoga mats. And that's mm-hmm. like, you know, go be a world-class athlete with, <laughs> best, you
0: know, um,
1: and, and anyway, this, you know, sort of spurred this larger investigation, um, into the NCAA and the way that they were investing in the men's product versus the women's product. And, you know, it's not just the weight room. It's the quality of the accommodations. It was the type of COVID tests that each team had.
0: Mm-hmm. It was
1: the food that was available. It was even like, this was one of my favorite details I learned while reporting. It was down to the actual puzzles that came in the sort of swag bags for the people um, in the bubbles. Like, you know, they're, this is COVID. So they're all in quarantine and they were given these swag bags oh. with, you know, mm-hmm gear and games and stuff and the men's bubble got like 400 piece puzzle puzzles and the women's players got like 150 piece puzzles and it's just like even down What's to like, like this tiny detail you know they're still getting inferior products so um
0: wow. like the women can't handle the extra puzzle pieces yeah. right. it's just mind-boggling for them
1: exactly. <laughs> like, which is just like you wonder like You know, one could assume that whoever made this bulk order of puzzles, like, why don't you just get the same one? (laughs) But, um, you know, I think those are just some kind of funny examples of how this, like, very insidious thing plays out. But yeah, it spurred this independent investigation of, you know, how the NCAA was treating its men's teams versus women's teams. And they found that their lack of investment in women's basketball as a product, um, you know, they were leaving up to a hundred million dollars on the table just by, you know, not investing in this product that they already have. Like from
0: a business perspective. Exactly. Right.
1: So it's not even like, you know, sorry, women's sports are just this, you know, money loser. It's Mm -hmm. that you're not investing and you're leaving money on the table. Um, So I think, you know, we're starting to see a lot of work around, you know, people building the business case around women's sports and it's really compelling. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Imagine, just imagine the billions that are currently in men's sports also being put into women's sports and how much that would grow based on like even already like women's sports are already at an inflection point right like it's yeah. growing kind of exponentially it feels like the last couple of years just
1: yeah which is interesting like when you do think about it from a business and investment perspective like men's sports are a pretty saturated market you know like mm-hmm. it's kind right. of you know, we're seeing like in the U S there's like two indoor football arenas that are being started. It's like, we already have like a major league football league. Um, but women's sports are like, you know, the equivalent of investing in a startup, like there's Mm -hmm. so much room for growth and expansion and therefore so much room for return, um, that I think, you know, ignoring that is, is just really almost criminal, you know?
0: Yeah. And with an actual startup, like with a funded, say tech startup, right? Your chances of success are like one in 10 or less. But I feel like with women's sports, the odds, I don't know, this is just me saying this now because I want it to be, but the odds have to be better than that.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, well, it's proven, you know, like you do see all of these really exciting case studies of when you do invest, like you do see the returns. Um, So I think the more of those case studies we get, you know, the the more change we're
0: going to see. Mm-hmm. When did you start writing the book? Oh, when, like, did, when you did you start working on research? I mean, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> um,
1: I started, so the journey for me kind of started um, back in 2019. I was covering the um, U.S. Women's National Team on the Road to the World Cup. So that's when I started doing a lot of research into um, the history of that team and the history of women's soccer. Um, I read this fantastic book by Gemma Clark, who's a soccer historian. It's called Soccer Women. Um, And she does such an amazing job of really detailing how the centuries-long fight for Mm quality women's soccer. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, it had kind of landed on my radar as this contemporary thing that started, you know, I think it was 2016 when they filed their first... um, complaining for pay discrimination. And, you know, she talks about how, you know, back in England during World War I, these women's soccer leagues started as a way to raise money for the war effort in England and they got too popular. And so the governing body of soccer in England literally banned women from playing soccer until 1970 because they were threatened by this idea that women's games were drawing too big of a crowd. Um, wow. And that was in 1970, which is so just mind blowing to me. Yeah. Um, so that's when I really started to understand, like, this is so much bigger than, you know, this one team and this one fight for equal pay. Um, it, it's really kind of this integral part of the fight for women's equality over the past century. Um, and I hadn't really heard it talked about that way. So it was something that I wanted to explore more and kind of bring to a new audience, um, who maybe wasn't super engaged with the sports world, um, but does care a lot about gender equality.
0: Yeah. I just, and part of the reason I asked about the when is that like, you must've seen, even from when you first started to kind of unpack this intersection between feminism and sports, like Then, like 2019 till now, you must have seen a massive change in like even viewership, sponsorship dollars. Is that true, or is that just my perception? Well, that's absolutely true. And I mean, that was something that you
1: know it was one of the most exciting things for me as a person who cares about this, it was, you know, made the mm-hmm. process of writing the book kind of like, you know, it just felt like it was never finished because there was always right. something new developing, um, which is really great. But, you know, even just to stick with the soccer example, you know, when I went into writing this book and, you know, was working on the proposal, I was like, they're going to get equal pay before this comes out, you know, at least that's my hope. Um, and so I never wanted it just to feel like it was about one specific team or one specific fight. Um, and, you know, obviously they did, they did get equal pay last year, which is amazing. Um, but I wanted it to be clear that, you know, it's not, the work is bigger than that and it continues.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. and then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Building muscle can be tough, and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein, like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. Okay. Let's shift a little bit here. I really think this is interesting. And as like two white women sitting here talking about sports, you know, and you mentioned it in the book. um, Can you explain what white feminism is and like some of the pitfalls that, you know, we could fall into when we're um, trying to make change in sports? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So everything I know about white feminism, I know from Koa Beck, who's this incredible journalist who really literally wrote the book, White Feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, And she chronicles how this way of thinking has really affected every major social movement, you know, from suffrage in the 1900s and the right to vote all the way up until now. um, And how it's really marginalized women of color, trans women, disabled women, um, you know, to the benefit of white women. So, white feminism is essentially, you know, aligning yourself with these ideals of white privilege and patriarchy in order to gain power within a system that ultimately is oppressing other marginalized groups. So, you know, it's like working to become the CEO of a company that doesn't pay its workers fairly, like that's not really feminism. Um, Or, you know, maybe put more simply, it's, it's, You know, there's no equality for one without equality for all. So um, in sports, I think, you know, I think we're seeing this play out in some really interesting ways. Like the women of the WNBA are absolutely the gold standard of intersectional feminism, like the movements that they have built. um, They're so different, you know, like it's and it's no coincidence that that's a league comprised of majority black women. Um, they really understand that idea that there's no equality for one without equality for all. Um, and that is baked into everything that they do. Um, so I think they should absolutely be the model for you know social justice movements more broadly. I think they've accomplished so much um, and often not gotten credit for it. You know, that's something that I really wanted to emphasize in the book, too, you know, when we think about um, you know, the fight for social justice within sports, you know, most people think of Colin Kaepernick first um, and his work is absolutely incredibly important. Um, but, you know, the women of the WNBA were doing that work before he kneeled. Um, and it's not to say that like one's more important than the other, but I think it's just like, you know, you don't hear about the work that the women of the WNBA have done um, as often as you hear about, you know, the fight for racial justice in men's sports. Um, But I think another area where this is playing out, and I know this is controversial for a lot of people, but I think we're going to look at the fight for inclusion for trans women in sports, you know, pretty similarly to the way that we can now look back, you know, to the suffrage movement where women fought for the right of women to vote, but by women they meant white women and often actively worked to discourage and oppress black women's votes. I think, you know, in a hundred years we'll be looking back on sports and saying the fight for equality for women in sports, meaning only cisgender women, is wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you there. Um and I know that it is like contentious in even in the circles, you know, where we've, you know, I've worked with groups of people who are advocating for change in our sport and triathlon. And I I recognize like that same group and I don't know what all of them think, honestly, but like, there's definitely some division around like trans inclusion, you know? Um, And yeah, I don't really know. I'm not really a great person to talk to because I'm like, so squarely on the inclusion side, like how do you define what a woman is for the purposes of sport? Yeah. How could you ever do that? And if someone identifies as a woman, like what else can you, you know, how else can you decide? But I do know that there is a lot of conversation, particularly when there's like prize money involved, um and stuff like that. But I do, I I really resonated with how you wrote about that topic too in your book, because like, or the way you wrote really resonated with me, I should say, because it like um because of the kind of the not to make it not to make it about whatever, but it's like the misogyny baked in to the conversation, which is like, if someone went through puberty as a male, there's no way <laughs> that like a cisgendered woman could beat them. It's like yeah. what? <laughs> like, do you know how many guys like, <laughs> like I yeah. beat in a triathlon? <laughs> like it's thousands of people, <laughs> you know? Exactly.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, that to me really reveals that like, this isn't about fairness and competition. This is about policing women's bodies because all of these, you know, bills that are being passed and thrown around about, you know, trans participation in sports, they're always about women's sports. Like none Mm -hmm. of these bills are about trans men participating. Mm -hmm. And I think that really says a lot. And then I think you also kind of, you know, open this really slippery you know, go down this really slippery slope when you start talking about regulating people based on like their biological right skills because you know that's what makes sports exciting. Like Michael Phelps has biological advantages that make him a better athlete than all of the guys he's swimming against. And we praise him for that. That's what makes him such a fantastic legendary athlete. So you know how can you say like, well, you know, some people we're going to police for their biological, you know, skills and assets, and others we're going to champion for it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that kind of goes against the ethos of what makes sports exciting, um, and then obviously is really, really dangerous to a group of people.
0: Yeah, yeah, and the question of like how you police, like how you actually enforce that policing. Yeah. Right. Like we see, I think it's in Florida where it's like the gender checks include genital inspection, you know, where you like you see bills starting to come through like this. It's like, what are we are we going back 50 years? <laughs> you know, it's like the the nude parade in the Olympics, right? Like why why are we here? Like how does that how does that protect kids when your girl can be like hauled into called somewhere to her genitals checked because she looks too masculine. Like what, what is, what even is that?
1: (laughs) Oh, it's so easy to imagine that happening, right? Like some girl has an issue with another girl in middle school, like she's getting bullied and she like lodges this, you know, false complaint that she should have to go through this type of check to compete on her team. Like, you know, there's just no way that you can tell me that a, a law that would allow for a government to perform genital inspections on girls is a law that supports women's equality um, and I think that is the thing that just blows my mind you know when we do see advocates for you know equality in sports um, holding up these laws and, and trying
0: to prevent women from being able to compete mm-hmm. yeah for sure. Um, okay, you talked you spent a whole chapter about um, individuals who are change makers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd love to know, like, what are the traits? What are the common traits that you saw in some of those individuals?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, the number one thing that came through in all of those conversations is understanding that their fight is bigger than they are. Um, You know, I think that to me was like the really beautiful thing about, you know, getting to talk to so many women athletes is that there's this very clear, tangible understanding that what they're doing is bigger than them. It's bigger than their sport. It's bigger than all sports. Um, and I think they really operate kind of with that North star in mind. Um, you know, I think we see male athletes, they, they aren't held to that standard. Like, they get to show up and just be good at their job and get paid millions of dollars to do it um, and not also have to be role models and advocates and, you know, change makers in society. Uh, Women athletes do have to do that because that's the way that the system is set up. Um, So I think it's, yeah, it's it's having that understanding that what they're doing is always bigger than them and kind of trying to open the door for the women behind them. Um, And also the understanding that, we are stronger as a collective. Um, you know, in sports, we get so many examples of collective movements that you know are kind of more fun and exciting and visible than you know, sort of like the conversations about unions and labor organization that are so important and has driven so much social change. But you know, maybe the average person like doesn't think that's super sexy. Um, but when you see Women in sports organizing, I, I think it, you know, it's a lot more galvanizing. Um, and so yeah, that understanding among them that they're always going to be stronger working together. Like we see a lot of collaboration across sports. Um, you know, women in soccer are talking to women in hockey who are talking to women in the WNBA. Um, and they're going to be better for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And how do we get more? media coverage for women's sports? Like, how does that happen? I know that's, I know that's a huge question. It's layered, but like, give us um, the coolest notes of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, number one, watch women's sports. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, just, that's a question I get a lot of like, oh, you know, like, what can I do? Like, watch them, put them on, like, just throw it on your phone, stream it. Um, that matters. Um, buy season tickets to a local women's sports team, like show your support in that way. Like, you know, unfortunately, because women's sports aren't valued well, like they're usually pretty cheap. That's like a pretty easy thing that you can do, um, to support and kind of help make that business case. Um, and I think also engaging with women athletes on social media, um, I think we're going to see a huge sea change thanks to the NIL laws that are allowing college athletes to profit off of their name and mm-hmm. image because it's cutting out the middleman. Like it's allowing these athletes to actually capitalize on the fandom that they build mm-hmm. um, in a way where, you know, they don't have to deal with a league telling them what they're worth. And um, they can actually say like, here's my audience, here's how engaged they are. Um, and because of influencer culture, like we have some pretty direct metrics about what that's worth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, getting more media coverage of women's sports starts with people, you know, sort of voting with their dollars and with their follows mm-hmm. um, and showing that this is a product that they want more of.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love it's like beyond because watch women's sports. That's a thing that we hear a lot. Yeah. And then, you know, and honestly, I find myself more interested in sports that I was never interested in before because I can now watch women play them yeah. <laughs> on the internet. Right. <laughs> um, which is like I can't be the only person in that boat. It's like, oh, I don't really <laughs> care about men's sports because it's <laughs> I don't relate to that. It's it's boring. <laughs> <Good>. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but then like that next layer of like when people do start watching when you have the influencers, when, when we then we've created a social media influencer, then that person has the capacity to make more money. And then that woman, like there's more money in women's hands. And then you have, then what are those people going to invest in? Well, it's probably it's there's going to be some percentage of it that comes back into women's sports, right? So it's like a giant flywheel that's in motion. Um yeah. I heard, I heard something and I'd love to know if you think this is true. Like, um, that in potentially as soon as like 20 years from now, that we could have more than 50% of the wealth in North America in women's hands. Mm-hmm. Um, can, do you see a path to that? Mm. <laughs> 20 uh, years seems short, right? 20 years seems
1: short, yeah. Um, depends on the day that you asked me that question. <laughs> um, I think it's entirely possible. Um, I think the way the pace of change that we're seeing happen, even just in this one industry is really encouraging. Um, I think that the, again, like the business case is there. It makes sense. Um, The question is around like, are we going to see the culture change that allows that to happen? Like Mm -hmm. there's a chapter in the book on leadership and there's just like massive amounts of data on the fact that when we have more women in leadership positions, whether that's like in a CEO role, um, or just a more diverse board and C-suite companies make more money. Like we see more returns and you would think really, yeah. And you would think if that's the, you know, your, your measure of success, like every company should just be putting a woman in the position of CEO. We should be having much more diverse boards from a racial and gender perspective. Um, but, despite all of the evidence that says you'll probably make more money if you do that, uh, you know, that's not really happening as fast Mm -hmm. as we'd like to see it. And I think that really speaks to this still like deeply embedded cultural misogyny. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think it's absolutely possible that we could see more than 50% of the wealth in women's hands. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, yeah, that's going to require some really deep shifts in the way that we think about women's worth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I just hope, I hope it's true.
1: I know. <laughs> yeah. Like we just need to, you know, get this bias out of the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's just get rid of that. Yeah. Easy, easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Michaela, how do people get their hands on the book?
1: Oh, yes. Well, it comes out on June 27th. Mm -hmm. Um, You can order it from any major bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, as well as independent booksellers, um, which is always so awesome. I love to see people supporting local bookstores. Um, So you can find it on
0: bookshop.org. Cool. And how do we follow you?
1: Uh, You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm um, at Michaela Mack. And, um, also you can see all of my work and find more information about the book, um, on my website, just mikaillamackenzie.com.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation and appreciate you spending the time with me. Yeah.
1: My favorite thing to talk about. So it's made my.